been messing around with the old playback volume, haven't I? And recording volume. Is this going to work? I wonder. Is this going to work? This is the uh, Professors on Strike special edition of the podcast. Been thinking a lot about the role of professors in the current uh, UCU struggle. I've been an average professor, very average professor, for seven years. Feel that increasingly it's my role to be active in terms of academic citizenship locally, maybe nationally, but mainly locally. I've kind of always gone on demonstrations and protests. First demonstration was in 19, when was that? 1988 at Lee Environmental, um, near Walsall. The environmental thing, there was a hell of a stink over my dad's, my mum and dad's house. And uh, well, something had to be done. Been a long legacy of them since, including the um, kind of 2010, 2011. A lot of protesting there, a lot of engagement at occupations uh, around the country. But also in London, we had quite a lot of discussions around setting up cooperative university at the you know, UPS building just off Finsbury Square that went into occupation for a while. I remember quite a lot of journeys down south with Jennifer Jones to go sit in go sit in a circle and discuss the possibility for cooperative governance and co- and what pedagogy might look like, what curriculum might look like, what a socially useful curriculum might look like. I remember getting kettled down in London a couple of times as well. That's a pain in the ass, isn't it? I don't really want to do that again. Anyway, I was sort of thinking about kind of being active, what it meant to be active as a professor for a while, being on demonstrations and protests, also taking part in more structured things. So being part certainly in the in the setting up of the governance of the Social Science Centre in Lincoln and it's increasingly active in the in the union. And I suppose in that, I guess I've, my main focus is on casework. So I do quite a lot of casework certainly over the last kind of 12 to 18 months and also about being visible in emailing members locally so it's i think it's kind of feel it's important for professors to be active in this current struggle over workload pay inequality over casualization and the attrition on on pay pay devaluation as well so part of this for me really is about this thinking through how do i dismantle my own power or give some of my privilege away or make the privilege and status that I've got how do I make that available how do I put it to use for for others who are who are casualized or whose voices are marginalized made marginal part of that is kind of how do I overcome my own rage at injustice in the world as well so part of it's part of it's that and i and obviously i've worked in you know i've been institutionalized inside educational establishments since i went to nursery in litchfield when i was four or three or whenever it was so that's a long old time to be institutionalized so i kind of see that the intersectional and intergenerational and intercommunal 
injustices inside these institutions and I've been looking at them for a long time. So I suppose part of it for me is how do I act as a role model or how do I provide a role model for other academics and members of the institution, professional services staff that I work with and other students in taking action in the world, but also how do I role model other professors either in taking action or who are not taking action or who are not in the union that also goes for for teaching showing solidarity with members of the education team at work when people are poorly or people are off sick so i think it's important as well that professors are there teaching undergraduates and sometimes i don't see enough of it if i'm honest part of that i think is a reflection upon how my privilege has emerged from the work of others i mean i'm not saying i haven't worked hard because i think i probably have worked quite hard over the over the years but a lot of it is predicated on or it's built on the labor of others people who have put work in put a shift in professional services staff library staff the it guys and girls the laboring staff um, inside academia, inside a variety of subject areas and schools in the university who are overworking, have overworked for years, continue to overwork. Part of the struggle is that I don't wish to reproduce what Kate Bowles and I, Kate Bowles over in Australia, and I wrote about in terms of the academic peloton. Um, we don't want to reproduce the inequalities and the iniquity of working inside a process or a structure of academia that represents or is similar to the peloton in professional cycling which is kind of calibrated around the overworking high-performing team leader generally a white man and I guess we wrote about that we thought about that in terms of kind of high-performing overworking labor-intensive professors who wouldn't disclose couldn't disclose shouldn't have to disclose whether they had any caring responsibilities any responsibilities for the social reproduction of their lives of their households but also who would be active on social media or active in the media about their I guess the intensity of their work so a classic one of these uh, is a couple of guys from Harvard who were tweeting about how you can't succeed unless you're willing to put in 80 90 hours in the laboratory each week and there was something that was tweeted around last week from some Dutch emeritus professor effectively arguing that you can't have a life and you can't have loves and you can't have care if you want to be a successful professor, there was Mary Beard uh, tweeting late last year, I think it was, about whether it was normal to pull a 100-hour week and things kicked off on online about that, about what kind of message that sends to those who can't pull 100-hour weeks or those who are struggling even with sort of 60, 70-hour weeks to either make ends meet or to reproduce themselves and not be exhausted. This sets completely the wrong kind of example in terms of an obsession with human capital, an obsession with productivity, an obsession with generating surplus and invalidating yourself, invalidating your identity as an academic or a professor through overwork. And part of this, I think, certainly in terms of that idea of the peloton, you know, the peloton existing with forms of omerta and paranoia. So the kind of the ways in which there were cultures of silence that operated so people wouldn't necessarily talk about what was what was going on. I guess we, we think about the Lance Armstrong scandal in terms of that and the fact that people were forced into silence in order to compete but in order also to get a living in order not to be ostracized within the peloton as a whole within the whole group of teams who were competing against each other and that this tends to breed kind of ill, Ill health ill-being 
sense of illness, mental health crises, overwork, the ability and willingness or the enforced forgetting of yourself so that these things become this kind of this kind of mode of paranoic behavior leads to kind of activities that, that we might class as self-harming but also culturally acceptable so culturally acceptable self-harming activities that's all pivots around the struggle for status privilege belonging tenure resources the ability to pay your mortgage and put food on the table each month all of that i think i'm kind of reflecting on in my own position and i was also very when i was thinking about this listening to gaminda bambra back in 2014 down in in London at a conference called Governing Academic Life. She spoke on a panel really eloquently about you know, well, where were professors during the student demonstrations of 2010-2011 as students are being kettled, as students are having their heads caved in by police, where vice-chancellors and the executives of universities are silent and therefore one might argue complicit in in this struggle of the state versus academic labor and in, in terms of academic labor i think i class that in terms of kind of students professional services staff and staff working together so those people who have to labor in the university are being disciplined they're being monitored surveilled they're being disciplined through um, the control of time through the control of wages access to wages part-time contracts short-term contracts Part of this then is, well, if leadership at the top is not able to engage and to support those individuals and those communities and those groups in pushing back and in the struggle, where are professors in that then? Are they putting their bodies and their careers and their futures on the line? And Gaminda, that's a really kind of important question here. And we know that professors have been vocal. Rywin Connell writing about the idea of the good university. Rosalind Gill writing about what it means to be ill effectively in the academic in the um, in the in academia. Rosemary Deem has written a lot about kind of neoliberal higher education. Stephen Collini, Thomas Doherty have written about this. Into, we might frame that around the idea of critical university studies and being against the university as is, being against the university as it currently is. We've got others, um, including myself, who've made a bit of a business out of analysing the business of higher education. Others, Akwugo Majulu, Kawant Bhopal, Heidi Mirza, who have pushed against structural everyday racism, the amplification of white privilege inside universities. Some, like Joyce Kanan or Mike Neary, have argued strongly for alternatives that pivot around cooperatives. So that we know that some professors have been quite vocal one of the things i was interested in just exploring really was i guess building a, a kind of conversation around the idea of where are professors in all this in this current round of strikes but also in fighting for better labor conditions i nearly said emancipatory god inside capital not gonna happen is it fighting fighting for better labor conditions where are they in that struggle and in particular around the kind of four struggles and, I'm, and I return to kind of the work of Sarah Ahmed in Living a Feminist Life. It's kind of manual for a lot of this for me, really. She writes quite early on in that about how we connect and draw upon each other in a shared project of dismantling the world as it is and its, and its privilege and its white male colonial privilege. She writes about how, how we build collective political movements and that's plural political movements plurally and really by taking on the idea that a collective creates but is also created by movement so we have to have some form of movement movement in labor conditions movement in kind of sense of self and who we are flows of flows that work against privilege and competition and status inside the institution um she talks about patriarchal reasoning 
going all the way down through the through institutions to the letter to the bone she says and she wants to she asks us to kind of question how do we find ways not to reproduce its grammar how do we work against the grammar of patriarchal reasoning in our institutions she says that feminism is necessary because of what has not ended sexism exploitation and oppression these things are still sexism sex, sexual exploitation sexual oppression we know we still hear reports of of that we still hear about grievances, the ways in which dignity at work are offended, and not simply in terms of sexism, because she, she argues very strongly that this is intersectional, that for her, feminism has to be intersectional or it will be bullshit if we're working against the reproduction of power. And I kind of see that as being really resonant for an ostensibly white male professorial culture so how do we work against the reproduction of that power and she's very clear finally about it's not fine she's got so much more to say that a feminist movement depends upon our collective ability to keep insisting on something insisting about this white patriarchal colonial culture that we wish to bring to an end it lives it exists it's structural it impacts our everyday lives it reproduces it is toxic it is intellectual and emotional work and what do we what do we do? What can we do about that then? For me, I'm interested in, well, how do professors build upon that? How do we connect our narratives and our stories into those of our early career colleagues or our precarious colleagues or our professional services colleagues or our students who have to, who've got caring responsibilities? As part of this, that's a long preamble, isn't it? Maybe longer. I always do this. It's longer than I expect, not than I expected or wanted or hoped, but it, it is what it is. Anyway, I asked for some questions. I asked for that on our, we have a lovely picket coordinators WhatsApp group for the round of strikes, which elicited two questions because obviously our picket coordinators are way too busy to um, ping questions to a professor. One person in particular sent me in a job lot of uh, trolling type questions. Richard, thank you very much. And I had a few questions or comments from Twitter. So we'll maybe we'll work through these. We'll work through these and we'll see where we go. It's not too many. There's only 12. You can dig in, make another cup of tea or something. We can dig. If we dig in, we'll get through this. First up, Justin from Leicester. Are your placards made of vellum and exotic hardwoods? Says Justin. So no, Justin. I work at DMU, not a Russell Group institution. Although you did make me realise that actually for a while I saw a kind of professorial thing, a bit like, you know, a monkish existence, somewhere like Mount Grace Priory, you know, those kind of, those monks who living underneath the North York Moors who had their own individualised cells with their own gardens, it would be like living space upstairs, downstairs, it would be like working, scribing, thinking space, and they would just be kind of served by this kind of lay community. It's kind of similar, isn't it, really? I suppose you're trying to, we're all, we're all trying to validate knowledge in some way, shape or form. But none of that is there, none of that at DMU. We're wedded to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, aren't we? So our institutional trade in lacewood and, I don't know, mahogany and sandalwood and Tasmanian rose myrtle, that's collapsed, hasn't it? We ain't getting any more of that. So no, no, no hardwoods for us. I'm also considering veganism, Justin, so I'm not happy about the sourcing of skin of young animals, really, for the purpose of public protest. Also, my calcium hydroxide and lime dealers have left town, so I'm at a bit of a, you know, a bit of, there's a bit of a dead end there when it comes to softening the skin of those young animals and removing the hair. So no, no vellum, no hardwood. It's kind of all recycled. Second up, Sherry from Warwick who says, I told some people here at the UCU Migrant Conference that I know at least two professors are caseworkers. They were so surprised and impressed. I'm not surprised, Sherry, to be honest. Why have you chosen to do this? She says, right, well, 
No, then why have I chosen to do that? It's, I suppose it's it's kind of, again, then it's important for me to kind of place what privilege and status I've got in a position where it can support those with, with less privilege and status and where it can hold truth to power in some way. And some stuff happened maybe a couple of years back as well, which kind of I get lit, lit the fire inside the institution again for me a little bit. And this idea of holding truth to power and standing up collectively and if, if I wasn't going to do it, then who was going to do it became really important kind of in my soul, in my heart. I mean, I like the everyday contact as well, don't get me wrong, of casework. So, you know, I've done work in a homeless shelter in a, as a school governor, pupil referral unit in Leicester with a football supporters trust for my sins over in Walsall. But they're all about governance, right? And I do some of that with the committee here, the UCU committee. But the connection I like in terms of casework is personal it's similar to kind of I'm, I'm an independent visitor as well for a child in care so there's a thing there about it's about the personal kind of contact really and there's in that there's something around human connection there's something about conciliation there's something about helping people helping people work through the process of working really and that includes helping people to be realistic and pragmatic about what they can achieve but I kind of feel that it's important that when we're talking about workload and we're talking about people's labor conditions and we've got a struggle we've got four struggles that are about those that professors are willing to put their time and energy and resources and their expertise into casework and that's negotiation with HR and management and with our members on the ground but I think it's important there to be visible Okay, number three, Richard, who's a lifelong Blackburn Rovers fan for his sins, oh dear, oh dear, says, is it morally defensible for a professor to walk past precarious colleagues on strike into work? Hmm, it's a morally defensible thing, really, isn't it, for me? I mean, the answer's no, isn't it? Bottom line, no. But Richard, as we know, under, I guess under capitalist social relations, moral right and bourgeois right, well, they tend to collapse, don't they? You know, so, so we we kind of become obsessed, haven't we, with equality of opportunity, things around, you know, merit, meritocracy. So we kind of think, oh, well, if you just work as hard as I think I worked, rather than, you know, if you work even harder because you don't have the privilege I did uh, as a white man. I mean, obviously, I'm kind of pushing that to its limit, aren't I, which I'm going to do for the next kind of 10 minutes. But if you work as hard as I do, as I did, and I do, you'll get on, won't you? You, could, you too could become um, an entitled professor. You know, we kind of become a bit obsessed with that, don't we? Rather than necessarily seeing, I guess, how the system is stacked against others for all sorts of reasons, it's stacked against them. And so we tend to bring all sorts of, cogn I guess, cognitive dissonance, diffidence, carelessness, selfishness, all these things and other, other kind of modes of, of living, kind of being blind to it, all of that. It gets brought into play, doesn't it? Not believing in it. All this stuff gets brought into play, you know, and it's phenomenal, isn't it? It's not just our professorial colleagues, it's um, it's others who walk across the picket line, walk through, don't join the union, don't believe in collective action, you know. So is it morally defensible? Well, ethics, morals, they're not trans-historical, are they? What, what are they inside capital? But I guess in this world that we're in now, where people are struggling, there's vast amounts of inequality, people are being casualized, our privilege rests on that casualization, that most modes of inequality, people's excessive workloads, the way in which we transmit excessive workloads, overwork, intensity, you know, not having breaks, not taking holidays, all of that, the way we project that through the peloton. No, it's not morally defensible. <sighs> it's an outrage, really, if I'm honest. Four, Richard, who is uh, a, a modeler, an engineer, a musician, and a former operations manager from Leicester, is professorial work inherently alienating? He says, oh, he's a proper troll. 
You're a proper troll, Richard. All work is inherently alienating, as you and you know that I know this, and I know that you know this, and I know that you know that I know this. So you need to stop trolling me, buddy. There are kind of hegemonic norms of production, aren't there? You know, and the methodological university imposes particular practices amongst academics and their communities and those are reinforced by methodological whiteness by patriarchal colonial processes that subjugate us all i think that's why it's kind of so important to reveal and show solidarity because the university operates under a particular methodology a particular kind of there's a particular culture which is kind of pathological there's a particular approach to activity which is which is methodological and it is framed by impact and measurement and lead tables and excellence and entrepreneurship and it's reinforced by think tanks who want to predate and parasitize institutions all those things that make the institution so methodological one of the ways in which we kind of push back against it is to say that that methodology is it is white, it is patriarchal, it is based upon norms of people who, who don't necessarily have caring responsibilities or when they do, you know, and they see that the shit hits the fan, you know, can they kind of move against that or do they try and outsource it elsewhere? So I was talking to, with a couple of professorial colleagues this morning about I care for my nan, previously cared for my mum for a year whilst I was a prof and the toll it takes and also the, the this couple of professors were talking about having parents or relatives with dementia that they were also having to care for who were quite a quite a distance away and the toll that that takes and I was and I was and really got me thinking about some work that Sarah Amsler and Sarah Motta wrote about in 2017 about the emotional and physical and intellectual toll and the toll on your career and your status that it takes to try to be a mother inside the institution to perform in a, a variety of ways in a variety of spaces so I kind of feel like it's important to reveal and show solidarity with the gendered experiences of academics, of younger casualized academics, of, of colonialized academics whose labor is less likely to achieve tenure, who have all sorts of different forms of emotional kind of labor placed upon them and, and requests placed upon them. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's a path away from alienation, our alienation from the things that we produce and the labor process, the conditions of labor from ourselves in the process of laboring and from our communities in the process of laboring. Part of the problem, I guess, is that for a lot of professors, the law of value still underpins their very raison d'etre, why they are in the institution. You know, they identify with value beyond value for money. They identify with the production of surplus time, surplus value through knowledge exchange, knowledge transfer, impact, entrepreneurship, becoming self-exploiting entrepreneurs. I've used this several times now, the, the idea of the academic peloton, pivoting around the overperforming professor. You know, it's so important. So I guess we might want to look for ways of abolishing kind of established forms of social and intellectual capital that have built up inside that peloton through new forms of intercommunal, intersectional wealth and justice. Because the alternative, is overwork, it's anxiety, it's melancholia, it's social fragmentation. So for me, there's a there's a real issue here around the idea of the professor maintaining ideas of competition and status and accruing status and accruing privilege, and that that maintains, and obviously they're all on performance-related pay and they're all on individualized contracts, and it maintains an estrangement of academic labor from the idea of society. It maintains a kind of almost a circulation of hopelessness, Richard. So it's it's kind of beyond alienation. It It is a hopeless kind of profession, really, or a hopeless kind of me mode of kind of existing inside a profession that is increasingly being made toxic. So for me, as you'll know, Richard, 
Marx's work is really important, particularly the Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts of 1844, which I'm sure you've read. I pointed you to them enough in the Alienated Academic, so um, I hope you have done. Marx talking about existence as a social activity through which an individual makes herself the society in ways that reinforce her conscious social existence. So if that's competitive and it's commodified and it's based on league tables, the individual and, the, and, the, and her society reinforce that through overwork, through student debt, through institutional debt, through entrepreneurial activity. And social activity becomes bastardized. It's really important for me that we think about ourselves as social beings, as Marx flags for us, and whereby our production in association with other people. It amplifies our, our idea of how, who we are, what we are as a species. It's an expression, it's a confirmation of social life. So for me, liberation can't emerge from privileging particular positions like professors as a form of kind of psychological defense or whatever it is against a loss of status or loss of privilege or whatever. It, it has to emerge from the ways in which we reimagine intellectual life and individual life in relation to what it means to be human, what Marx would have called our species being. So there's no way out of alienation inside capitalist social relations, only by working through them and against them and against issues to do with identity, against identity. We acknowledge identity, we acknowledge difference and we move beyond it. Next up is Paul from Crosby. Paul, a, uh, a, a long-time Walsall fan from Crosby. Withdrawing one's labour, he says. Empowering and liberating or angry and sad. How are you feeling? Hmm. It's about four fights, isn't it, Paul? It's about four fights. It's about inequality. It's about pay inequality, but actually it's more broadly about inequality. Gendered, racialized, based on disability, sexual, gender, whatever. It's about all those things, about inequality, in structural inequality. It's about pay devaluation. It's about casualization, which disproportionately affects particular groups. And it is about workload. It is about workload that damages not just academics and their well-being, because it becomes ill-being, but also families, because those families have to pick up so much of the kind of emotional and social reproduction. And this is important, right? Because universities are allegedly the most liberal, allegedly the most liberal institution we have in society. And yet it has all these issues erupt inside it. And they erupt around ideas of value that's now being parasitized. We see that being parasitized all the time by think tanks, by consultancies, by the Office of Students, building a narrative that completely demeans the work we do. Absolutely, abjectly demeans the work that we do because they cannot see beyond human capital they cannot see beyond the idea of the economy forget the polity it's about the economy being paramount i want to refuse that i want to i want professors to work to think about liberation and so i guess withdrawing one's labor is liberating because it gives us the space to think about this and it validates this away from the workplace and our ability to build solidarity around these four fights but also the idea that they interconnect to enable us to talk about humane values as opposed to economic value. And in particular, in relation, I guess, to, you know, we've got an ongoing crisis of capital with ra huge ramifications for the environment, for economic populism, rising fascism, the rise of the alt-right, drivel from Turning Point UK about free speech on campus, about objective academic practices on campus, all of that kind of stuff. It makes me angry and sad that we have to do this to fight for equality, to fight for reasonable workloads, to fight against casualized employment. But it is liberating to be out with those colleagues and to talk to them as a professor. 
and to try to amplify their stories and voices. This is not a question. This is from Carol, who's a professor up at Newcastle. And she tweeted in, professors should be on strike because it's the whole sector that has problems. And we then suffer too. We are not immune from the problems. We work here too. We often don't have power to change things. And so much needs changing. Academia only works when we are collegiate. I have nothing to say on that other than I agree. Alex from Kent, professor down at the University of Kent, he tweeted in a picture, I assume, of either himself or one of his colleagues on picket line, privileged oldies for generational justice. So I think the thing here that I take from that is this idea of generational justice. There is an intergenerational injustice. There is an intercommunal injustice. There is an intersectional injustice that is amplified throughout the sector. And we are pushing back against that. You'd be pleased to know we're almost two thirds of the way through. So you've dug in this far. Um, I think we can make it. So Jason from Leicester. Would their presence at strikes or at the picket line have any legitimacy if they have been complicit in producing the very circumstances that led to strike action? Hmm, good question, Jason. It's an important question, actually. The idea that actually if professors have been catalyzing working conditions that are demonizing, making toxic, making unhealthy breeding ill-being if they are engaged in, in kind of working practices that breed that should they be on the picket line <sighs> lots of us are complicit aren't we those of us who overwork those of us who are locked into performance related pay those of us amplifying i don't know the kind of technocratic re-engineering of the institution increasing overwork for professional services staff increasing the likelihood that staff are going to be made redundant, those denying the need to kind of overcome issues of inequality in relation to gender or disability or race, or those denying the validity of work on decolonizing institutions, whatever we think about how problematic that is. Those are actually, I guess, agreeing to forms of restructuring, cuts to humanities departments, cuts to the social sciences, which we're seeing again now almost as a proof of concept at certain institutions. Those whose work proposes a new focus on human capital, economic value, I mean, I don't know whether whether those people being on the picket line, I don't know whether that has any legitimacy at all. But, well, I guess if, you, if you're talking about managers, I don't see them on our pickets anyway. If you're referring to those who lead teams, then I guess it kind of depends on their ability to reflect and struggle against those labour conditions. And I don't know what they've been doing inside. So it is a problem, though, isn't it? Actually, Jason, it's one that we probably, it's about conversations on the picket line, but also conversations outside about those labour conditions. It's got to be an ongoing conversation beyond these 14 days. Oh, it's back to Richard from Leicester again. If professors swapped salaries for a year with early career researchers, with no other changes to the job, would they be on the picket line? Yes, Richard, they would. Or no, Richard, they wouldn't. I guess it depends on how wedded to the structures that alienate them they are. I guess the peloton, it exists for a reason. It's reproduced for a reason. It becomes self-harming for a reason. It amplifies academic work as a culturally acceptable self-harming activity for a reason but i guess yes they're much more likely aren't they em empathetically they are much more likely to be out they're much more likely to be on the picket line aren't they because they're going to kind of finally see or get a taste i guess of just how precarious some existences might be and i've heard some horrendous stories from early career researchers or early career teaching staff about having to give up the idea of having a family or starting a family not having a family but definitely starting a family or going through processes of uh, fostering an adoption because of issues around ref and TEF in their own institutions and that's more and that's several institutions and these kinds of they're not the only issues clearly but they're ones that have always stuck in my soul really about the way in which work colonizes and bastardizes and abuses 
your own life and your own sense of self. Number 10, Richard, a lifelong Blackburn Rovers fan. It's him again. Why should a professor whose very job title is of necessity individualised and who the individualistic system has rewarded join with a collective action against such a system? Well, Richard, that's an important question, isn't it? And I think we need to remember the positives, definitely the positives, that being on strike, I guess, is a way of overriding or working against those kind of false rifts, false separations, false dichotomies that are imposed, that isolate, that separate, that individualize us. It's important to think about the idea of four fights, the four fights in the professoriate. Not, that's not necessarily in terms of paid evaluation, because I'm paid way better than anyone in my family has ever been paid. But certainly in terms of the workload of professors, which a lot of which is self-imposed, but some of which isn't in terms of the bureaucracy of the institution, but also in terms of teaching and research. We need to think about the ways in which that is unequal across the professoriate. So some do way more academic citizenship activities than others. We definitely need to think about inequalities in terms of, that are intersectional. So the number, for instance, of black female professors in this country is an outrage, an abomination. The number of female professors is equally an abomination, but definitely more freedom of information requests in about the pay of those individuals, the bonuses of those individuals, more pushing in that space around the ways in which four fights apply to the professoriate in order that we can build solidarity between the professoriate and the rest of the labouring population inside institutions, including PhD students, those grad students who are made precarious, because that is a massive stagnant or surplus population of labour that we should be showing solidarity with. And also those professors, their mothers, their fathers, their carers, they've got people in their families who work at universities, whose futures are under threat, friends are working professional services and they're overworked or ill. We've got friends who work in estates or porterage or cleaning and their work's being outsourced. If in the other half of the sector they lose over USS pensions, they'll come for local government and TPS next. And they'll come for the pensions of those who follow us, our more precariously employed or casualized colleagues who are just starting out. We have to kind of stand collectively against this kind of competitive hellhole. And it reminds me, as I'm often reminded, of Engels writing about competition in the condition of the working class in England in 1845, arguing, and this is kind of really resonant for kind of professors, that competition is the completest battle, the completest expression of the battle of all against all, which rules in modern civil society. And that kind of fragmentation, that fragmentary battle of all against all, which rules, it dominates, it's hegemonic, it's being imposed inside institutions through individual and subject-based and institutional league tables and competition and issues around impact and employability and entrepreneurship and human capital and longitudinal educational outcomes. And Engels argues that this is a battle for life, for existence, for everything. In case of need, a battle of life and death fought not between the different classes of society only, but between the individual members of these classes. And I think this is why it's so important that professors analyse their own conditions of labour and the ways in which they connect to those who also labour inside the institution. We need to think about abolishing academic labour as a whole. Think about abolishing the conditions, abolishing the way the inequalities, abolishing academic labour as a, as a as part of a process of abolishing labour because it is deeply alienating and actually it isn't enabling us to escape from the contradictions of kind of value production and the collapse in value production that's happening globally and eating away at the climate and our own environment. So Engels goes on that each is in the way of the other 
Each seeks to crowd out all who are in her way and to put herself in their place. The workers are in constant competition, as are the members of the bourgeoisie amongst themselves. And so this is a real thing for us about kind of well, what kind of market-driven, mediated world do we want? One that's mediated by money, by the division of labour, by private property, by the idea of the academic commodity, always in competition. Engels goes on to argue that actually we, we try and nullify competition through association. And this is why joining the union, being active in the union, struggling inside the union for gender equality, struggling against factionalism, is so important trying to build those associations from our union to other teaching unions in other sectors trying to build then out uh, other unions that are struggling against labor conditions wherever it may be in the public sector but also in the private sector for those who are casualized for uber delivery whoever it might be because if we don't the bourgeoisie the kind of capitalist class those who dominate us those who are operating transnationally as a class to impose a particular worldview around economic value around value for money around productivity for instance are going to continue to divide us and that'll leave us helpless and Engels is very clear about that that it will leave us helpless and that it will further distance us from our own means of subsistence because the bourgeoisie has a monopoly on that we don't have it we can't provide for ourselves can't put food on the table can't pay down our can't find a place to live put shelter over ourselves without constantly selling ourselves every day selling ourselves in the marketplace so what do we do collectively to move beyond that? It's fundamental and professors have a huge role in leading this inside the university and in offering ways to connect that struggle inside the university out into civil society. And by, they by no means have a monopoly on that, but they have ways of leveraging privilege and status to enable that. Following on from that little lecture about Engels, two more questions and then I'm gone, then I'm done. The first one is from Warren from Nottingham via Sheffield, who asks, what reasons do professors give for not striking? I don't know, Warren. I guess you made me think about an email that came around from management at DMU a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, arguing that those who were on max plans, those who were performance-related pay high levels of management, had to be available to pick up work just in case people were out on strike and work couldn't be done. And this caused some consternation amongst people on max plans, professors, others, about, well, actually, I voted for strike action, but this means that I've got to be at work, doesn't it? And I'm thinking, no, it doesn't. I had to send something out saying, no, 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 you're covered by the vote for strike action. You don't have to tell senior management. You don't have to tell the institution whether you're out or not, unless you're asked afterwards. And then you reply truthfully. And this is, again, about solidarity and not being divided and about not being separated and not being individuated, even though you are separated and divided and individuated. So one of the reasons professors gave was, oh, well, the university's told us not to. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Almost like there's an internalization of, I don't really want to go on strike. Do I have to go on strike? I'm on an individualized contract. I know that I don't know what my peers are earning. I don't know what their workload is. I don't know what they're working on. I don't know what their contracts are. And I need to kind of protect and defend my own status and privilege. Oh, I've been told by the university that employs me that I'm not on strike. I better not be on strike, even though my union and those around me, my my labouring colleagues are telling me that I am on strike. And that was like really interesting moment about, well, how fearful, how anxious are you? Where does your, um, where do your loyalties lie? Beyond that, I don't know. 
I've talked to a few professors and a few aren't unionized. They don't perceive that the union is relevant for them because they are, again, individualized. A few of them don't believe in collective or don't, don't seem to believe in collective action in the same way. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of reasons. One of the critical things, I think, is that professors like me who are active on, on the in the union and are active locally and are active doing casework talk about this and try to join up for fights, work, positively and productively and carefully and caringly and empathetically with the with what's going on for professors and try to build through that and try to build as well around say at dmu we've got this decolonizing dmu project which is brilliant but we try and build through that to talk about promotion tenure pay inequality workload all of those issues and that we talk about that in the context of kind of professorial work as well so trying to join it up is really important right one more question you'll be pleased to know thought we'd give the last word well it'll be to me won't it but I thought we'd give the last word to Richard from Leicester because he took such time and care to spam me, to troll me with questions. He says, should professors be abolished? It's a no-brainer, Richard, isn't it, really? It's a no-brainer. However, first, we must all, but professors included, be educated a little bit more, I think, or come to kind of understand and hear narratives about solidarity. We need to enhance our political economic literacy so we understand a little bit more about our labour about the conditions of our labour, about what happens to our commodities and where what work around those commodities is, is responsible for in terms of kind of commodity dumping in the global south, in terms of prioritising impact and human capital and economic value and the generation of menial or leverage skills, in terms of the fact that we, we seem to prioritise the ownership of commodity skills by individuals and these are produced socially right the things that we as professors produce like the book the alienated academic that i wrote i'm currently working on a book called the hopeless university for mayfly i'll write them but they're predicated on the work of others but we play on this idea that we we have commodity human capital commodity skills knowledge capabilities capacities you know, well, we need to kind of socialize those. We need to engage more in developing our own literacy around the political economy of higher education, what it means to work there, the labor conditions, the things we make, our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to our peers. We need more on this, I think, in particular because intercommunal, intersectional, intergenerational justice has to be at the heart of what we do. And I suppose I end with a few of you will have heard me talk about this quite a lot or mention this quite a lot as a bit of a throwaway statement but the world's in a mess completely in a mess and the voices that have got us here are generally white and male they look like me really they they look like they have privilege and status and they take a particular form and those are not the voices i want to listen to to get us out of this mess frankly and i think professors need to be part of that process i think it's really important that those with power challenge their own power and privilege and status and try to do more with it for others and try to wean themselves off it and try to dissolve it into the fabric of the institution before the fabric of the institution is dissolved into the fabric of society right i'm off now i need uh because there are two things really the first is i need a cup of tea and the second is that i've got a management committee meeting for um the pupil referral unit so right i'm going now i will see you soon and i will leave it to ray elbow and the magic beans to see you out see you on the picket line